A reading from the Gospel of Mark. Some Pharisees and supporters of King Herod were sent after Jesus to catch him in his speech. The two groups approached Jesus and said, Teacher, we know you are truthful and unconcerned about the opinion of others. It is evident you aren't swayed by another's rank, but teach God's way of life sincerely. So, is it lawful to pay tax to the emperor or not? Are we to pay or not to pay? Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you trying to trick me? Let me see a coin. When they handed him one, he said to them, Whose image and inscription do you see here? Caesar's, they answered. Then Jesus said, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. This reply took them completely by surprise. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. I hope you enjoyed the 4th of July yesterday and took some time to ponder the status of our nation. Though I love celebrating Independence Day, I'm never quite sure about the appropriate messages to be delivered in Christian worship on a Sunday in close proximity to the birthday of our nation. As I see it, the 4th of July is not a Jesus kind of day. Jesus of Nazareth would be about as out of place at a celebration of the 4th of July as a fur-cloaked Eskimo would be on Waikiki Beach. Think about it. Jesus would not appreciate expressions of national arrogance or shouts of braggadocious words about American exceptionalism. Jesus had deep respect for the value of all people everywhere. His hope embraced the world. The Prince of Peace would find no glory in a nation birthed by a violent revolution and evaluated primarily by the size of the gross national product. Of course, Jesus would praise people devoted to freedom and committed to the provision of justice for everybody. Well, you get my point, I think. So as we worship God today, we will do well to rethink the differences that distinguish religion and government from one another, and thus how those two basic entities should relate to each other. The wisdom of Jesus is as politically sound as it is spiritually inspirational. Government and religion have different natures, purposes, authorities, strategies, values, and measures of success. That's why Jesus told people to give to God what belongs to God and to give to Caesar the civic side of this belongs to Caesar. History books emphatically warn us of the danger of trying to turn a government into a religion or turn a religion into a government. 
We need religion and we need government, both of which are filled with politics, but each has its own reason for existence. Neither is easy. I wish that right now I could turn to a passage of Scripture that would provide for us a blueprint for constructing the kind of government that assures equality among citizens, tirelessly works on peacemaking in the international community, and develops relationships that nurture citizens and seek unity domestically and internationally. But no such scripture exists. Different verses in the Bible describe multiple forms of governance, a theocracy, a monarchy, an autocracy, and, and more. Notice, notice carefully that not one of those governments was perfect. Remember, the same government that the Apostle Paul described in writing, saying the authorities are ministers of God, only a few years later was condemned by the author of Revelation as the beast, the dragon, Satan. The writer of Philippians urged Christians to, in whatever kind of government they were experiencing, good or bad, said, let your manner of life, uh, the phrase is best translated, let your politics, let your politics be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The relationship between government and religion in the United States has varied greatly. Our government is still an experiment. Right now, anti-democratic conflicting forms of government are ripping our nation in shreds. We are a dangerously divided land. Some people want our country to be a theocracy in which the Constitution is replaced by the Bible and elections are handed over to leaders who claim divine rights. So interesting. In recent presidential campaigns, so many candidates have claimed that God called them to be president. They have made God look like a befuddled politician. Still others in our land insist that churches should just completely remove themselves from politics, arguing that all politicians are liars. I grew up in that kind of irresponsible church. That's why early in my life, I went to work for the Southern Baptist Convention as the first person ever in that body to work on nurturing good citizenship without trying to develop a theocracy. During those days, in the early 1970s, the religious right emerged and began preaching a very questionable gospel, the message of which was, if citizens do not vote for the right president, fund religious schools in competition with public education, and condemn abortion, those citizens cannot be known as Christians. Uh, 
right now. Millions of people in our country condemn religious freedom, our first freedom for people whose religion is not like theirs. These critics of true religious freedom judge citizens on how they support certain policies more than whether or not they are following Jesus. These are people who can be mean for Jesus. I have never forgotten the look and words of a woman angry because a religious body had voted to oppose the war in Vietnam, who with a blistering denouncement said to me, I love my nation more than I love my church. Sadly, scores of people would readily give up democracy in order to live as a majority, a Christian majority. Of course, the huge flaw that keeps these narrow-minded people from running the nation is, as my friend James Dunn used to say, virtually every person who wants a theocracy also wants to be Theo. Frankly, more than the ones who want a theocracy and those who want to give up on politics completely, I fear people who have endorsed and embraced a civil religion and substituted it for authentic religion. Civil religion in America has its own scriptures, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Gettysburg Address, for example, its own high holy days, July 4th, Memorial Day, Labor Day, President's Day, to name four and its patron saints, Washington, Adams, Franklin, Jefferson, Lincoln, and sometimes King. The symbols of this religion are revered, a handsome bald eagle and an unfurled flag of stars and stripes waving at full mast. The shrines of this religion are Arlington National Cemetery, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, the battlefield at Gettysburg, and Independence Hall in Philadelphia. During the halftime show of the Liberty Bowl football game in Memphis, Tennessee a few years ago, I saw a celebration of the epitome of civil religion. The football field was the outdoor sanctuary. On one side of the 50-yard line was a nativity scene. On the other side of the 50-yard line Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was dancing with Frosty the Snowman. People in the stands were on their feet, waving flags while singing Silent Night, Holy Night. Friends, that's not religion. The God of civil religion is the nation not the God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. To worship the nation is idolatry. So with people pushing and shoving to make their choice of religion, their choice of religion, the national religion imposed on the nation, how may we best worship God this morning in a way 
that also honors allegiance to our country as a part of celebrating the birthday of our independence without just lifting up a culture that has nothing to do with real religion. Briefly, I offer some possibilities. Jesus emphasized a virtue relevant to every segment of our lives, whether we're dealing with uh, discipleship or citizenship. The virtue of which I speak is truth. Truth, honesty. Truth-telling to ourselves as well as to others. Truth is the absolute prerequisite for trust, and without trust, there is no democracy, and religion has no integrity. Now, let's be honest about our nation. As one of my professors taught me, the American flag is not a blindfold, but a bright symbol to help us see clearly what's happening in our nation. Patriotism is not my country right or wrong. It is to strengthen what is right and to correct what is wrong. Look, if we can't be honest about ourselves, we have little hope of being honest with others. It is not easy. Our nation is so good in so many ways and so wrong in so many ways. My longtime friend, Bill Moyers, opened my eyes. Thomas Jefferson was bold, visionary, and right as he stressed the importance of equality in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the hand with which Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, he also regularly, selfishly, right-denyingly, mercilessly grasped the hand of a slave woman he bedded, impregnated, watched with his or her children without ever acknowledging them. Jefferson never saw that Mary Hemings enjoyed unalienable rights which he so eloquently wrote about. Moyers wrote, Jefferson got it right. He lived it wrong. That which Jefferson could commend to the world, Jefferson could not embrace in his household. Mr. Jefferson knew the truth. Mr. Jefferson lived the lie. I often think that the realities in Jefferson's tainted model of patriotism have found their way into contemporary realities in our nation. Over and over, we have talked good talk, but our actions have not always been the embodiment of our words. Our citizenship looks paradoxical. Our predecessors in this land frequently spoke of justice and liberty. The same people who stole the land of the inhabitants who were here long before they were. To this day, the consequences of their theft have left Native Americans, indigenous people, living a third world life while being set aside on reservations. The people who came here searching for religious freedom once settled in jailed people like Baptists and others 
who did not preach and worship in their spiritual tradition. Most Americans today want religious freedom only for themselves. Now, to be sure, Americans have sacrificed lives to preserve freedom and invite people into our nation to experience liberty. But simultaneously imprisoned innocent Japanese families living in our land told Catholics and Jews to leave this country or die, more recently barred Muslims from entering our country, and in recent days, officials of our government have separated children from their parents who responded positively to the welcome placarded on the State of Liberty, the Statue of Liberty, not knowing our invitation was now closed and learning that there is no guarantee that their broken families will ever, ever be together again. You know the stories. We love the good ones and try to forget the bad ones. While bragging about democracy, our nation refused to allow women and African Americans to vote, as well as they made sure that those same people would be treated negatively economically and educationally and more. Look, I know this hurts. It hurts me to be honest as we look into the mirror of history. We have mimicked the behavior of Jefferson. We have cheered what we have written and sung about our land, but we have not turned our lyrics of promise or our good thoughts into positive actions. Early in the spring of 2005, I was invited to appear before the Oxford Union, the historic debating society of this prestigious English university. I was reticent to go there. Um, on a previous occasion, speaking in Great Britain, uh, they put me up on the 4th of July and asked me to defend civil disobedience. <laughs> Not a, a very comfortable engagement. But I accepted the second invitation. The people of Oxford asked me to defend the proposition that American religion undermines American values. My sentiments were on the other side of the debate. I regularly critique the manipulation of religion and speak of religious liberty as a foundation of democracy. However, without question, uh, the proposition, the proposition of the Oxford Union could be defended with passion. Obviously, the very term American religion is problematic. Our nation has as many views of religion as it does governments. What we affirm in our churches, we often set aside in our politics. Look, I wrestle with the question, what are our primal values? It's a question that needs to be answered with naked honesty. Now, supposedly, American values include equality among people created with dignity and worth and a guarantee of fundamental rights and liberty for all people. At a minimum, a provision of civil rights, justice, and religious liberty. 
viewed from the perspective of our founding documents, these values include civil debate, compromise as an essential component in the art of government, protecting the rights of the minority, funding a strong system of public education, practicing open inquiry, maintaining a balance of power among the branches of government, and avoiding entanglement between the institutions of religion and the institutions of government. Is that how we're living? We must not forget the words of Jesus. Our sacred responsibility is to give to God what is God's and to government what belongs to the state. Why have we not listened and learned and obeyed? The worst things that have happened to both religion and government in our nation are the government's politicization of religion and religion's religification of government. The consequences of those initiatives, still active, of course, have weakened our democracy and robbed religions of their integrity. Government is a secular institution. Religion is a spiritual way of life. Each religion and government can help the other, but neither can do the other's work without harming it substantially. Religion in America has made its greatest contributions to this nation by ministering as religion, making clear how the core moral values of all religions intersect the basic civil values at the heart of our government in the interest of the common good. Right now, what the United States government needs from religion in this land is for religions to act like religion, comforting, nurturing, fellowshipping, walking together, reminding the government of the primal values that are the substance of most religions, and encouraging us to live not only with independence, but also with interdependence. Then, then we'll be engaged in politics that are worthy of the gospel. The United States of America is my home. This is where my heart is. But this nation can't have my heart. That belongs to God. Langston Hughes' words touch my heart and soul. No longer, though, can I identify with all of his words. Listen, please, to the poetry of Hughes and my responses. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. No, I don't want that. I don't want to go back there. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Yes, dear God, yes. Let it be the great strong land of love. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wealth, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. Yes, let it be, God. 
Oh, let America be America again, if it ever has been that way, I think. Oh, let America be America, the land that never has been yet and yet must be, the land where every person is free. Honest to God. Amen. Thank you for being here. It's our hope that in this space you have known yourself loved and opened yourself in some way to God's presence so that we can go forth and share the love that we have found. And now people of God receive this benediction. 
If here you have found freedom, take it with you into the world. If you have found comfort, go and share it with others. If you have dreamed dreams, help one another that they may come true. And if you have known love, give some back to a bruised and hurting world. You are seen, you are loved. Go in peace.